one of Alicia's least favorite things to do is announcements. So to get me back for giving her more announcements than we have words in the sermon, she took the microphone with it. Right, let me get myself sorted here. Um, how are we doing? As Alicia mentioned, you may have noticed there is a uh, distinct lack of, of bagels um, on the way in this morning. Uh, you, you can shake your head, Kathleen. We mentioned it last week. I warned you. If you, if you didn't come, I mean... So we're going to um, reassign those resources, as it were, to Communitas is one thing. But it became kind of clear over the last couple of years that our pre-service bagels purchased for us to, to gain community and hang out and prepare ourselves for the service had become mid-service bagels. <laughs> and we wanted to, as we've talked about before, we want to instill the value of worship, of worshiping together and spending time in the throne room of the Lord um, with the, the incredible musicians we have, the incredible worship leaders we have. And, and I just felt a little challenged that I'm not sure Cabaret was cutting it. And it was maybe time that we, we pivot a little bit. So with this brunch after service, there'll be another one planned um, in, the, in the coming weeks, months, so that we can really lean into community together rather than um, just sort of eating on the, on, the, on the way past, as it were. So that's the plan. We'll see how it goes. Nothing's set in stone, but that's the plan. Um, the passage that Alicia just read, I think, sums up a lot of what we've been talking about over the past couple months. We've looked at, at who Jesus was expected to be in the Old Testament, where the promises were, and who he was and who he said he was in the New Testament. And we spent some time sort of in light of that, trying to figure out who, who we are and how we are equipped for kingdom work. And the passage that Alicia read describes, I think, kingdom work. Love each other deeply. Love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms, so that as we serve, we do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. That's the kingdom work, and that's, that's hard work. That's the hard work we're to undertake, and we're to do it in a broken world. And that brings great challenge and you may even think that today, as you read that passage, you hear that passage being read, that sounds easy in theory. That looks easy maybe on paper, but in reality, there's a challenge there. It takes more intentionality. It takes more effort, more investment, more resolve than I can muster on a Monday morning or a Friday afternoon. Well, what I want to spend our time on this morning is how Peter actually recognizes that challenge to do that work, and he actually recognizes it quite bluntly. So though we started in um, reading verses 7 through 11, I actually want us to look at the next section for our time together. So let me pray, and then we'll dive in. Father, thank you for your word. And we pray that you open our hearts to it, you open our minds to it, and you open your word to us so that we can grow in our faith, we can grow in our understanding, and we can deepen in our love for you. Thank you that you meet with us. Thank you that you meet in our own brokenness, and we ask that you give us the strength and the resolve to serve you. Amen. So the next section of of 1 Peter looks at how we handle suffering. He doesn't pull any punches. He says this. This is starting from verse 12, right after where Alicia left off. Dear friends, it's friendly, 
Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Rejoice insomuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. So he's not pretending it's going to be easy. He describes it as a fiery ordeal, the people he's writing to, and that we're going to participate in the sufferings of Christ. So he understands what he's calling us to, or what God is calling us to. And I think there's three kinds of sufferings to consider in, in life. And usually, in any kind of one point in time, you're experiencing one or maybe more than one of those types of suffering. There's a suffering that just happens because you're, you're, we're human, and things go wrong because we live in a fallen world and things don't go our way. We live in a community of other imperfect people. Our bodies wear out. People die. As you know, my, my family's experienced quite significant grief over the past year. And as, as hard as that is, as constant as that can feel, or as present as it is day by day, it's a part of life. We have suffering as humans. So there's, there's that kind of suffering. And there's a suffering... A second type that, that I cause myself by the choices, by the, the dumb mistakes that I make. For example, if you get drunk and then have a hangover, that's a suffering based on a dumb decision. It's quite straightforward. And we bring a lot of suffering on ourselves. That is true. Um, in Galatians, it says, a man reaps whatever he sows. And then that's very accurate as we talk about those kind of sufferings. And um, Peter even gives some advice on this. He says, um, as we read, he said, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief, which that seems like a fairly reasonable parameter to have in place. It's a fairly low bar, but okay. And then the last type of suffering, the one we're going to talk about today, is the suffering for faith. When you suffer for doing good, when you suffer for being a believer, when you meet those challenges, when you're doing the right thing, you suffer redemptively. And Jesus is the best example of this. He suffered, and he did what was right. And more than now, yeah, more than 20 years ago, yeah, let's just say more than 20 years ago, um, in dorm rooms in college, in my undergrad, um, I experienced this kind of suffering. I lived in a, in a hallway. It was, there was three huge towers. Well, huge. We're in New York. <laughs> I was in England, so there were three small towers um, of dorm rooms, and I was you know, assigned to one of them on the ground floor. And I, I, it was just, you know, a tiny little room. And I hung out with the people in that hallway a little bit in the, in the first couple of weeks of the year. And then kind of found my group, found my group with the Christian union, with the church, that kind of stuff, and, and, and migrated to that group. And for one reason or another, those that lived in that hallway didn't like that. I, I don't know why. I don't think there was anything particularly intense about anything. They just decided this would be a fun sport. And so they would, um, they would hammer on the door. They would kick on the door. They, they would post explicit pictures all over the place. They changed the door number to 666, stuff like that. And it was really unpleasant. It was traumatic to, to a degree. I'm on my own for the first time. I'm only um, 18, 19. And to wake up in the middle of the night to people screaming obscenities and yelling and banging on the door is, is not fun. In the end, they actually damaged that door so badly that I went to the RD and they, they relocated me to a, another dorm room. 
And um, so I, I know what it can be like to face opposition out of seemingly nowhere. And I tell that story not as an accolade to myself, but an, an example that suffering can be unseen. Suffering for faith can be unseen, and it can be seen, and it can be open confrontation, or it can be more discreet, but it's still painful. And it creates a challenge, and it creates trauma, and sometimes you have to take action. I moved to a new location, move rooms. It might be a situation you have to persevere through, or it might be something you have to remove yourself from. The goal isn't suffering for suffering's sake. That's not the point. That's not what we're going after. But Peter says, if you suffer for your faith, like when you're harassed because you're a believer, at, whether it's at work or school or, or out and about in the neighborhood or, or even by relatives who don't understand where you're coming from, and they'll ridicule you because you stand for certain things and they don't like it. Well, what do you do? So Peter addresses it a little bit, and he says that we should be ready. We should expect that suffering is probably going to happen at some point. In verse 12, dear friends, do not be surprised at these trials you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. Don't be upset when this happens, when people put you down, when people challenge you because of your faith. Don't be frightened. Don't be shook up. Don't be caught off guard. In fact, be prepared. If you're going to be a believer, if you're going to follow Jesus, there will be points in your life that people don't like. Jesus himself was very realistic about this. He was honest. He said, you'll need to consider the consequences of a commitment to me. In Luke, if you're going to follow me, count the cost first. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, that no servant is greater than his master. So if they, if, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Well, did they persecute Jesus? Well, yes, of course they did. He said, if they do it to me, they will. They will. Not they might, but they will do it to you. I think there's a, a lie we often tell ourselves or we like to believe because it's easier that if we do everything right in life, if we, if we toe the line, if we do the right thing, make the right choices, things will be smooth. It will be smooth sailing. Um, and if they don't go right, we feel cheated. And that's, that's wrong. The Bible said that's not how it's going to go. You can do everything as right as you can in life, and you still have problems. Because you and I can never be perfect anyway. Jesus was perfect. They crucified him. And I think we often forget that we're in a, a spiritual battle. Once you decide that, you know, I'm on, I'm on God's side, I'm going to follow his way, I'm going to follow, follow Jesus, you become an enemy of the devil. In Ephesians 6, the Bible says that we're not fighting against human beings, but wicked spiritual forces. And in Revelation, he calls the devil the accuser of our brothers and sisters. So when we follow Jesus, Satan wants to hurt God. He wants to come at him, but he can't because he's God. So he does the next best thing. He hurts us. He hurts God's kids. If you're a believer, that's who you are. And if you want to hurt someone, you can hurt their kids. If you want to hurt me, the easiest way to do that would be hurt my kids. You hurt my kids, you hurt me. And this past week, um, we take our kids go swimming on um, Wednesday, Wednesday. The day's not important, but... We were swimming on Wednesday, and I was in the, we were at the, the college pool, I was in the bleachers, and the kids are swimming and doing what they're doing, and there's a guy was sitting next to me, and he said, you know, it's your kid there, and said, what, he said, it's, it's not very good, I was like, okay, uh, 
oh, it's a bit, okay. And it's a bit more sensitive than other kids, I bet. Mm, I'm not trying to be mean, but it doesn't seem to, you know, I mean, that's, that's it's, how long has he been doing this? It doesn't seem to be very good. And you, you can begin to feel this, like, I'm, I'm feeling protected. I'm, what, you're, you're hurting me by saying something like, I, I'm ready to, like, swing some, I don't care if this kid is seven who's talking to me. I will get him. <laughs> it doesn't matter. You still have that visceral feeling of, like, don't. Don't come at my kids. Don't come at my kids. Satan tries to get back at God by hurting his children, who are those who put their faith in Jesus. So he advises us. He said, get ready. Be prepared. And then he tells us, kind of controversially, to rejoice when it happens. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. So rejoice when it does. Verse 13, rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Don't complain. Celebrate. Now, that sounds ridiculous. I get it. But the key word, I think, is the word rejoice. It doesn't say enjoy it. It doesn't say enjoy when you're put down for Christ. It says rejoice. And there's a difference between enjoyment and rejoicing. Enjoyment is getting pleasure out of something. Rejoicing is choosing to have a positive attitude in spite of it. God doesn't say enjoy persecution. He says, rejoice in it. Keep a positive attitude. And that's a choice to rejoice. It's an attitude adjustment to, to reframe our focus. So if we're reframing, reframing our focus, what are we focusing on? Well, we're focusing on the idea that suffering draws us closer to God. It says, these trials will make you partners with Christ in his suffering. Afterwards, you will have the wonderful joy of sharing in his glory. In Greek, it's the word koinonia. I think it's pronounced that way. I listened to it like three times this morning. That's the word for fellowship. It means you get to know somebody up close and personal. Closeness, intimacy, commonness. When you suffer for Jesus' name, you have fellowship with Christ. It draws you closer to him. And we know that because if you suffer with anybody, it bonds you to them. The suffering, the hard work, the experience of the journey you go through with, with someone else, through that challenge, that trial, binds you together. When people go through a disaster, it brings them closer together. When families experience the same problem, it brings them closer together. When you suffer for doing the right thing, it draws you closer to Christ. In Philippians, says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. It's the idea of I want to know not only about Jesus, but I want to know him personally. And how do you get to know him personally? How do you get to know Christ as a personal friend? Well, you have to go through the fire. And when you go through the fire for Jesus, you're going through the fire with Jesus. And it draws you closer to him draws you closer to Jesus, and it means that God can be seen in your life. When you're having a tough time, for Jesus' sake, when you're trying to do this kingdom work, you're trying to meet the challenge that Peter set out in the verses that Alicia read, it means that God can be seen in your life when you hit that challenge. When people, it says, when people insult you because you follow Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of God is with you. It may not bring you happiness, but it does mean that somebody sees something different about you. 
They've noticed the difference. If you're never challenged for your faith, what does that tell you? Second Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, he's going to give him encouragement. He says, all who live godly lives will suffer persecution. If you're never challenged about faith, you might want to look at why that is. When people put you down, when harass you for your faith, whatever it is, it does mean you're a person of character, of conviction. You stand for something rather than fall for everything. There's a, um, a lot of you know this too, I, I love quotes by Winston Churchill. And there's a common misquote of Churchill. There's a lot of common misquotes of Churchill. Most of the things that he said, he never actually said. But um, it says this, it says, you have enemies. Good. Because that means you stood up for something sometime in your life. Churchill never said that. If you Google it, that's the picture will come up with that quote and his picture. He never said it. It's actually a longer quote from Victor Hugo in 1845 or so. And it says this, and I'm going to read it because I quite like it. You have enemies. Why? It is the story of every man who has done a great deed or created a new idea. It is the cloud which thunders around everything that shines. Fame must have enemies as light must have gnats. Do not bother yourself about it. Keep your mind serene as you keep your life clear. Now, that is not to say that we should go around doing whatever we like with no thought to the consequences of those around us, but that Jesus Christ was not ashamed to die for you, so don't be ashamed to live for him. Peter and the disciples, they were literally beaten up for being a believer. It still happens around the world. Between 5 and 10 million believers are killed every year for their faith. And in 2022, there's a report from Open Doors, and it said the persecution of Christians has reached the highest levels since it began its, its data collection three decades ago. Hostile incidents increased by 20% since 2014. Some 360 million Christians, just about 14% of the worldwide total, are said to have faced persecution, harassment, or discrimination. Now, even without diving into the full context or, or the details of those numbers, we can be thankful that we don't experience that kind of thing on our doorstep here. We want Jesus as long as it's comfortable and convenient. But if Christianity were outlawed, would there be enough evidence to convict you? How many people know you're a believer? Why did God allow Job to lose everything he had? Well, because God could trust him. What does your faith cost you? Does it cost you anything? On, uh, on Friday, I hosted, uh, a couple of us hosted an after-school club for elementary kids um, in Battery Park. Um, in the community center, and we were talking about the Good Samaritan. There was like 16, 17 kids there um, that don't, most of them don't attend a church. Um, and one of the kids, we were talking about this Good Samaritan, how do we serve others, and what does that mean? And one of the kids said, well, I, I, you know what? I think the guy who didn't help him was probably right, because he might have lost his job, and that would have been worse. So we talked about that for a little bit, and a fifth grader um, came to my rescue, really, <laughs> and countered with the idea, she said, I would like to build on what that child said. I was like, oh, please do. And she said, you know what? I think that helping others might always be inconvenient. And I think she was right. I think there's always a cost for putting out someone else first. There's always something that makes us uncomfortable, that's difficult, that takes us out of our comfort zone. 
So refuse to be ashamed. Refuse to be intimidated. Don't run from situations that put your faith on trial. People are watching. Every minute of every day, people are watching. They want to know if your faith is genuine. They want to know if you believe what you say you believe. Are you someone of integrity? Do you have convictions? Is it real to you? Because if it doesn't seem it, their interest in it will wane. First Peter 4.16, it says, if you suffer as a Christian, if you suffer as a Christian, he's not talking about suffering because you're obnoxious or you make bad choices. Some people act hurtfully without the regard for others, without space for worldviews or opinions and say, I'm suffering for Jesus when confronted with opposition. No, you're being a jerk. You're focusing on areas in society you don't agree with rather than highlighting areas that bring honor to God in your own life. Don't blame God for treating people poorly. But Peter says, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. I think sometimes um, Christians, believers, would never think of doing certain wrong things, but they are sometimes ashamed to admit they do certain right things around unbelievers. Because it can be a challenge to be in the world, but not of the world. And it can be a fine line to tread, to not be seen as judgmental, but as loving and accepting, even when your values are not aligned with others. For example, um, there's a strange cultural tendency on social media, and in person, really, to sort of roll your eyes at your spouse, you know, the, the, the ball and chain, or my useless husband, or whatever it is. It's quite common, and it's easy to maybe just not join in. It's harder to counter it. It's harder to say something positive in that conversation, or on that post, or in that um, social media, whatever. Why is that? Are we embarrassed to hold a healthy marriage as, as a sacred partnership? We're embarrassed by that? Peter says it's not just a matter of doing, not doing bad things. It means being confident and being honest and admitting that we do certain other things, not being embarrassed of it. Don't be embarrassed for your faith or for your values. Remember, the passage started with the caveat to love others deeply and stand firm in your witness not the other way around. And I think the problem often, as we tread that fine line, is a fear of rejection. We're afraid of what other people will think. We talked about this last week, the need for acceptance that we all have. So be more concerned with what God thinks of you than what other people think about you. Because that's spiritual maturity. When you think more about what God thinks about you than what people think about you, that's what's going to last. In Matthew, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we get to heaven, God isn't going to look at how much money you saved in your bank account. He's not going to look at how many trophies you have on your shelf. He's not going to look at how many awards or plaques you have on the wall or degrees you might have achieved. He's going to look at the people that you ministered to and the scars that you have. Did your faith cost you anything? Let me end with First um, Peter chapter five, verse 10. In his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So after you have suffered a little while, he will restore and support and strengthen you and place you on a firm foundation. Amen.
we're going to turn to our communion and time of response. So those baskets are going to make their way around the room now. But let me um, pray for us as that happens. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promise to strengthen and protect us. Give us the strength and the courage to stand firm in faith and to witness for you.